Glad you're with us today. It's my joy to introduce a new couple uh, as part of our church family. We've got their picture on the screen, and they're with us today. Y'all mind standing where you are, giving us a wave? Uh, we're talking about Jordan and McKenna Taylor. Uh, they both went to Freed Hardeman, graduated there, uh, got married last November. Some of you remember McKenna as the daughter of Chris and Michelle. But I was thinking there are some mothers-to-be at Murray Regional who are so happy to have her expertise as a nurse. Uh, what a wonderful young lady she is. Jordan, some of you know, he served us uh, as a youth intern uh, several years ago. Uh, so they are both graduated Freed Hardeman, and now he's a route development manager for Best Cleaners and New Brand Cleaners. So uh, get to know them. Introduce yourself. We're glad that this is going to be their church home. Uh, our lesson today is about Jesus as judge. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we have been studying the names of Jesus, uh, and one of the things this study does is, if you will, when you go to the eye doctor and they'll say, is this clear or this or this, this is the kind of study that makes things a little more clear. Uh, and I think this will be the lesson that will help us in that way. Um, there's an outline in the back of the bulletin. Uh, this may be the lesson you want to take notes uh, or maybe write down some of the references that are going to be on the screen to go back and to study more. You know, I know one would say our country is perfect. Our laws are not perfect. Our lawmakers are not perfect. Our courts are not perfect. And I was thinking about, you know, when I hear news about the state courts and the U.S. district courts and all the different names of courts, I can't keep those up in my mind. I just think of the Supreme Court. But I'm so thankful that we as a country do not settle things by bullets and force, that we do have a good way to live. I put this on the top of your outline. I want us to remember this. The Supreme Court isn't. The Supreme Court isn't. We as Christians recognize another bench, and even higher, and has the final say. Hebrews 12, 23 says, you have come to God, the judge of all men. God is the judge of all men. Go all the, all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. Abraham, speaking to God, said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? When you think about how many of the new Christians were from a Jewish background, they accepted, they believed God as judge, but they took a step further and acknowledged Jesus as judge. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul wrote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. This was a new thought, that this Jesus of Nazareth is now judge of the world, the judge of all men. And I want you to notice as we go into this study throughout the New Testament, that very wording, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. When you read about Jesus as judge, it's spoken in the context of his second coming, about judgment, about his kingdom. So I put this statement on the top of your outline. We should first anticipate the return of Christ as judge. As believers, as Christians, as God's people, we should anticipate the return of Christ as judge. And this is one of the many ways we differ from those from a, a pagan background. 
Pagan philosophy says that history is just continually repeating itself. It's just cyclical. We're just kind of in this ever-going spiral. But a biblical worldview teaches from beginning to end that we are moving forward to a purposefully designated ending point, the day of judgment. That appointed end will be a day of judgment for all who've ever lived. Maybe you're thinking of Hebrews 9.27. It says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So from the beginning of time, from the beginning of Scripture, God has structured the world with this end in mind. And everybody is headed that direction. Look what Paul said, Acts 17.31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul is saying the resurrection is proof that history is not a cycle. It's proof that history is pointing to this day that is to come. Jesus said, John 5, 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all the judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And think about how often when Jesus taught, he would reference the coming judgment. It was throughout his teaching again and again, especially in the parables. In Matthew's Gospel, there are about 140 segments of teaching of Jesus. Of that 140, 60 either directly or indirectly reference this judgment, this second coming. So much so, F.B. Bruner, who wrote one of the premier commentaries on the uh, Gospel of Matthew, wrote this, judgment is the second most important teaching of Jesus. But I'm guessing Jesus as judge is probably not your favorite name. It's not the word that gives us the warm fuzzies or we think of as we pray, as we think of Jesus at all. It's not the one that comes to mind. In fact, sometimes when we think of Jesus as judge, it makes us afraid. But should we be afraid? Should we fear the judgment? As Christians, is that something that we should fear? What does the Bible say about Jesus judging Christians? Often when we talk about judgment, our mind goes to those who are lost and the damnation and and, and all that goes with that. But I want to, in our lesson today, talk about what the Bible says about judging Christians. So here's the first observation, straight from Scripture. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order, get this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit all the judgment that your sins deserved were laid at the cross of calvary so you're now according to the gospel the good news of jesus you're now clothed 
with the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way these righteous requirements of the law could be met in you. That's what he's talking about here. And your eternal destiny has been decided. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your judgment has been decided. So the second coming of Jesus as judge holds no fear. Remember when you were in school and your teacher would give a a pop quiz and you knew the material back and forward, 10 questions, and you said, bring it on. You were ready. You didn't fear the test because you knew. You knew. We've also been on the other end of that when you weren't ready and you got that test. That's when you're like, oh, no. And you fretted. You were worried about it. The second coming of Jesus should hold no fear for those who've already acknowledged Jesus as Savior. He came first to make a way of salvation, not to judge. Remember he said that, John 12, 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So from the very beginning, God said a day is coming. He's going to bring everything to an end. But that day is not going to come before he graciously gives everyone a chance to be prepared for it. That's the good news. God gave a way for us to be united to the very judge himself. Write down Romans 6 and go back and read that. That's what happens when you're buried in baptism. You're united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. We are united with the judge. So you don't fear the return of the judge if you've accepted Jesus as the Savior. But if you haven't, if you are not in Christ, as the Bible talks about, that day of judgment will be an awful day. Now, Christians might think, well, since my sins have already been judged on the cross, then there's no future judgment for me, no future uh, uh, judgment for the believer, right? Look at Romans 14, verses 9 through 12. Look at the wording here. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the book of Romans. He's writing to Christians, and he uses the word all. We must all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. So this is the second truth. First, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second, there is evaluation of every believer's service to Jesus. There is an evaluation to come. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As I was working on this lesson this week, I thought this is not the easiest topic for a number of reasons. First, I don't have all the answers. But secondly, I'm concerned that some might misunderstand that I am teaching that you work for your salvation, that we must earn it. I hope you are convinced that the Bible does not teach works salvation. The Bible does not teach what some call the scale view. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago where you you have all your good things you've done and then the bad things you've done and you just hope that you've done more good than bad and then, then you get to go to heaven. The Bible never teaches that. 
Now, that thought is out there. Sometimes it's in all of us, but you don't find that in Scripture. Salvation in Christ comes by grace through faith. The Bible is clear about that. However, when you are accepted in heaven by faith in Christ's work, do you know you are going to be rewarded in heaven based on the things that you do, your works? A Christian doesn't face judgment to decide your eternal destiny. At the day of judgment, we're going to be able to see what is in regard to our reward. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, there are multiple verses that speak of rewards in heaven, but not enough to answer all of our questions. And that's one reason we don't talk about this a lot. We don't teach about this a lot. However, Jesus consistently taught to his disciples, and you remember the phrase, put your treasure in heaven. Remember that? Put your treasure in heaven. So Jesus teaches there is service that will be rewarded in judgment. Well, what kind of service? Let me share a couple of examples. You're going to write these down. First is good deeds. Verses like Ephesians 6 and 7 and 8. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not man, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. Or what about perseverance? Hebrews chapter 10, 35 and 36. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. What about those who are persecuted? Hebrews 5.12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What about serving the least? Remember Jesus telling the story about the great party? And he says, you're making the invitation list. Don't just invite the people who also have the means and the wherewithal to invite you back. Look what he says, Luke 14, 13 and 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What about those things done in secret? Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If you remember, he talked about fasting, he talked about giving, he talked about uh, uh, praying. And if you do that publicly, that's the reward you get. That's the only reward you get. So check your heart, check your motive. The God who sees in secret will reward you. And then helping those in need. Mark 9, 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. On that day of judgment, Jesus, the righteous judge, I believe will, will reveal a very surprising judgment, evaluation of all these small, hidden, obscure acts of service that produced a great harvest, bore fruit. Think about it. That's the only reason Jesus can be the judge. That's why we need to be glad that he is our judge. You can't be my judge because you don't know my heart. You don't know my motives. I can't be your judge. And all of us, we're limited by time and space. None of us can look to the future and know what little things, small things, obscure things, hidden things you do serving Jesus, all these examples he gave, what kind of fruit 
that's going to bear in the years to come. But Jesus sees it all. Tony Campolo tells a story about the time he was a counselor for junior hires at camp. He said every Christian should be a junior high counselor at camp once. Billy was a camper that year with cerebral palsy. So much so that his gait was extremely problematic. His speech was just very hard to hear what he was saying. And because of that, all the other junior hires were just ruthless. They just made fun of him nonstop. Each night, they would close the day with a devotional, taking turns. And one night, they selected Billy to speak. Tony said he was furious because he knew the only reason they asked Billy to speak was so they could make fun of him. So as Billy shuffled up to take his place to speak, the giggling started. It took Billy three minutes to say seven words. Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. Tony said he looked at the crowd. Every camper was in tears. And he said as he traveled the globe, he would run into ministers and missionaries. He said, you don't remember me, but I was at camp that summer. And that was the moment I decided to make my life count and serve the Lord. Only God will be able to judge the fruit that will come from your service. But it will be rewarded. God is going to reward a lot of people for that phrase, that cup of cold water. A lot of people we may never see do these small things for the kingdom. I think about the single mom who gets up every Sunday, brings her kids to worship and Bible class. I think about the, the people who sacrificially give to care for orphans, to help flood victims, to help people connect at worship online. I think about those who are generous with their money to send a teenager on a mission trip or maybe help dig a well. Someone who's just taking care of a neighbor. It's not some church-organized activity. They just see the need. They're giving the cup of cold water. And the Scripture says, because of Jesus. Not just to be a good person or a good American or, 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 or a good Southerner. It's because you belong to Jesus. And I thought about how many people are serving God right now because somebody, as John Simmons mentioned last week, but somebody somewhere along the way in a Bible class when you were a child coming to faith poured the goodness of God into your tender heart. And you believed. That day is going to be a marvelous day filled with surprises. But i got to tell the other side too. It's going to be surprised in more ways than one. When the fruit of some believers are evaluated, and this is where we need to pay, pay attention to this, it will be judged by Christ to be of little to no eternal significance. It may have consumed a lot of your life, a lot of your attention. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. 
By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light." It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. You want to write this verse down and come back and just kind of note what it's saying here. Paul is explaining that we're standing on the foundation of Christ Jesus. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are secure in the salvation that Jesus died and purchased for us. But we are building on his foundation, building the kingdom that he placed us in. So the question then is, what quality of materials are we choosing to build? How much of our life, our time, our energy, our money, just like the world, is caught up in meaningless things? Because one day, it's going to be consumed. And it won't matter at all. Now, notice, according to the text here, both builders are going to be saved. Isn't that what it says? But only one will be rewarded. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but their fruit will be evaluated, especially those who misspent their energy on things of no eternal significance. But what does that matter? Because sometimes we joke about that too, as long as I get in. You ever heard that? You ever said that? I might just, as long as I just slide in, I'm in, I'm good. And we're going to be grateful for that. Well, here's why it matters. That's the third principle. It matters because there is exaltation for each believer in proportion to their discipleship. Again, we don't talk about this much, but it's throughout Scripture. Look at Jesus' words, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Jesus is the righteous judge. He knows your secret motives. He knows the ultimate outcome. And he rewards in his infinite knowledge and perfect holiness. See, he's the perfect judge because whatever he judges, whatever he decides, nobody can argue with that. It's going to be true. It's going to be right. It's going to be fair. That's who he is. And it's going to be a day, I believe, of great reversals. Think of how many times Jesus would teach and say, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Remember that? You see it again and again in Scripture. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Lots of people have humbled themselves for Christ, and in this life they have never yet been exalted. But they will be. That is the promise of Scripture. That doesn't mean that that's their only motive, that they humble themselves so that they could get something good out of it. I think for most who follow Jesus' words there, their actions follow a heart for Jesus, a life transformed, walking in the Spirit of God. That's why they're able to do this. And here's the amazing thing. On that great judgment day, some people will be surprised Let's look again at the verse that Philip read earlier, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40. 
When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus very clearly teaches that while we may be unaware of the spiritual realities that are going on all around us, he is not. He sees everything. And make no mistake, He is going to honor His followers, His disciples, who truly were His disciples. Now, what is that honor going to be? That's where I I can't say for sure. But the picture we get in Scripture is not increased privileges. Instead, it's increased responsibilities. Sometimes when we think of heaven and the afterlife, our automatic thinking goes to some incorrect or, or incomplete thinkings. Like maybe the first thing we think of heaven is just rest. Uh, and so we just kind of hang on that word. It's just going to be a, a time of rest. And the Bible does talk about that. But I wonder how much for us, when we think of heaven, what comes to mind could be traced back to a cartoon when we were a child. And so instead, we picture wearing white clothes and we're kind of floating on the clouds. And it goes way back to we're not even sure where, but it's stuck in those early days. And it's still what we think of with heaven. But the Bible talks about serving Jesus. Think about how many times Jesus would teach a story or a parable about a master who's going away. And then when they return, that faithful servant was giving more responsibility. Remember, that wasn't just a, a one story. He, he did that often. Remember the servant in the parable of the talents? Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little And look at the phrase, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Is Jesus teaching there's different levels of reward? Because we sure struggle with that one, don't we? How can that be? Because one of our problems of truly grasping that is in our life, this sin-sick world... The self-centered world, think about it, whenever there's differences, distinctions, there's enmity and jealousy and strife. Somebody has more than me. Somebody had a step up. Somebody is less than. We can't imagine that not being the case. It's hard for us to imagine a place to have distinction and not have discrimination. But again, can we even imagine a place where there's no self-centeredness? Is that not where, what heaven will be like? Where everything is centered on our Lord Jesus? Jesus is judge. 
And if you are not a Christian, that should just cause you to shake in your boots. You should fear that. But if you are in Christ, you can look forward to the coming judgment. You live your life in such a way that you are eager for your assignment Jesus will give you. I read a story about a, many years ago. An older couple was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was late at night. They couldn't find a hotel room. At 1 o'clock, they went to one thinking, surely, surely, we can get a room here. But they were booked as well. The man behind the desk said, Mr., there are three huge conventions. There are no hotels around at all. But I can't send a nice couple like you out in horrible weather like this because it was raining cats and dogs. He said, you sleep in my room. I'll stay here in the lobby. They declined, but the man working the desk insisted. So they did. The next morning, the older gentleman said to the clerk, you're the kind of man who ought to manage his own hotel. And the guy just smiled. About three years later, that clerk, that man working the hotel, received a telegram from New York City. The older man reintroduced himself and said, come see me, I want to show you something, and enclosed a train ticket. So the man boarded a train with New York City. The older man took him to the corner of 33rd and 5th Avenue, and together they planned, designed, and built a very impressive hotel. That hotel was what became the Waldorf Astoria. That young man was Charles Bolt, George Charles Bolt, who was rewarded for showing kindness to an old couple. I don't know how. The more I study this, I have more questions. But what I'm convinced of is someday, some way, the Lord is going to say to you and me, because you did this, because you were there, because you gave, because you turned the other cheek, because you, and you can fill in the blank, you taught that class, you served as a counselor at camp for junior hires, whatever it was, I saw that, and you're going to be rewarded. Look what I've prepared for you for the rest of eternity. Okay, let me close with two things. I'm going to be super clear on this. I did not intend to inadvertently undo any biblical teaching that we are saved by grace through faith. So fill in these blanks. Grace precedes work. That's what the Bible teaches. Salvation is a free gift that comes as we trust in the work of Christ. Our works, our service is a grateful response to what Jesus did for us. I don't think it's true, but there's a story about Abraham Lincoln. One time he saw a young African woman uh, being sold as a slave. And so he bought her. And so he said to her, you are free now. She said, what does that mean? He said, it means you're free. She said, does that mean I'm free to say anything I want to say? He said, yes, it does. Does that mean I'm free to do anything I want to do? She said, yes, it does. Does it mean I, I, I'm free to go where I want to go? He said, yes, it does. She said, then I want to go with you. Whether true or not, I think that story well illustrates the principle. What we do for Christ is because of His amazing grace. He has set us free, and now we live our lives for Him with gladness. Look at Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not 
of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Grace precedes work. But then verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's the second principle. Look at the wording here. Grace precedes work. Do you catch that? Salvation by grace should never bring about lazy or negligent discipleship. It's not about just, i got to come on church on Sunday and punch my ticket so that I can go to heaven. If that's your approach, you totally missed it. The world may appreciate our values, our work, our decisions, but the world's not our judge. Jesus Christ is our judge, and he will not let our labor be in vain. Henry C. Morrison returned home from 40 years of serving Jesus as a missionary in Africa. On the same boat was Teddy Roosevelt, coming back from one of his African safaris. And when they pulled into the harbor at New York City, because the president was on board, there was a huge crowd there to receive the ship. There was a band played. All the reporters were there just to get a word. And and, and fans of the president just to see him coming back from one of his trips... But there was no one there to greet Henry Morrison and his wife. He left that huge crowd all alone, feeling quite dejected. After 40 years of serving Jesus as a missionary, you think somebody would be there to pick them up, to welcome them and say, thank you, but there was no one. It was then when his wife reminded him, Henry... We're not home yet. When the judge comes back, and think about it again, whenever you read about the judge, it's about his coming, his second coming, his appearing. He will reward those who were his. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The judge, the good judge, will see to it. Jesus came to save the world. That's what he said. And that includes you. And he wants to be your judge so that one day you can stand before him and he will be your savior. Our song of invitations encourage you to say yes to Jesus. If you've never yet confessed your faith, if you've never yet been buried with baptism, if you are not yet in Christ, we want to give you a chance to do that. Or if we can pray for you and your walk with the Lord, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?